Hi, this is Mitzi Perdue, author of How to Be Up and Down Times, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Mitzi Perdue, author, speaker, and businesswoman. Mitzi Perdue holds a bachelor's with honors degree from Harvard University and an MPA from George Washington University. She's a past president of the 40,000 member America and Agra Women, a former syndicated columnist for Scripps Howard, and her television series, Country Magazine, was syndicated to 76 stations. She's the founder of Ceres Farms, the family-owned company that owns commercial and residential real estate and plus agricultural land, including vineyards that sell wine grapes to wineries such as Motivai, Bogle, Foy Adu, and Toasted Head. Her I've Lived It experience comes from membership in two long-lasting family enterprises. Her family of origin began in 1840 with the Henderson Estate Company, forerunner to the Sheridan Hotels, which her father co-founded, and Purdue Farms when she was married to Frank Purdue, which began in 1920. Mitzi is here to talk about her book, How to Be Up in Down Times, co-authored with Chicken Soup for the Soul series, co-author Mark Victor Hansen. Welcome, Mitzi. Hi, it's so good to be here. It's great to have you. Mitzi, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I guess the answer to that, certainly my mother was very inspirational because she was a warm, caring Southern lady, but it was my father who influenced me even more because I loved asking him how he built the Sheraton Hotel chain. And what age do you remember asking him that type of question in order to satisfy your own curiosity? Well, there was two parts to it. The first part is, yeah, I really was curious because it was so obvious to me that he was more successful than the little kids that I grew up with. I mean, I was very aware that that not everybody has a summer home with a ballroom that holds 200 people. So I knew he was successful. So I wanted to know how, how he did it. But then there was another part to it too, which is I was, there were five siblings. I was the youngest and a guaranteed way of getting parental attention was to ask daddy about his business. And what would you say is one or two of the lessons that you learned from asking about his business and how I'm sure you got his attention by asking such a, a clever question? What did you learn from that interaction? Well, my favorite story that, that he'd tell is he said whenever he'd take over a hotel, and this was during the 1930s when hotels were going bankrupt right and left and you know, nobody was getting into the hotel business. And so how did he make a success of it? And here's the answer. He told me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, he'd ask all the people who worked for the hotel to come into the hotel's ballroom. And you know, he'd know that they were a very demoralized group of people because if you lost a job back then, you probably weren't going to get another. I mean, it was a time of 25% unemployment. Well, he'd invite them into the room and knowing that they're demoralized and in pain, he knew that they weren't going to listen to a word he said until he dealt with their pain. And the pain is you know, fear that I would lose my job. So the first words out of his mouth always were, I want every one of you to stay in your job. 
So right away, he was addressing something that was in a conversation in the mind of the people who he was talking to. Yeah. But then it went further because on top of that, he'd explain why he wanted them to keep their jobs. He'd, you know, looking right at them, he'd say, you know your job better than anybody else in the whole world. And I don't want to lose that expertise. And on top of that, I believe in you because you will see that in the next few months, this hotel is going to turn around. It's going to be the best served, most popular hotel in the city. And together as a team, we're going to show the city that things can turn around and get better. Wow, what a message of inclusion and excitement to fill them with after something that could have been so devastating if it was a typical, hi, I'm here to let you know that half of you aren't going to be here in two weeks. But from my point of view, his story gets even better because he told me that what he had just been saying was, you know, they're just words and words count. But he said actions really drive the point home. So he said the next day, all these people who worked in the hotel would see just cavalcades of plumbers, decorators, electricians coming in to refurbish the hotel. Because if the hotel's been on the verge of bankruptcy, it's probably gone to seed. I mean, stains on the carpets, frayed curtains. But he said, all these people who are coming in to refurbish the hotel, they would never go first to the places that the paying public would see. Now, and this is my father speaking, the first place I ever spent money on a hotel was on the areas which only the people who worked there would see. Like, for example, the employee dining room, the employee showers, the employee lockers, even the rickety old elevators. And now it's me speaking again. He was signaling to them how important they were by spending the first money in making their lives better. And really sending an announcement to them that it's not just words, he's backing it up with action and dollars to show them in a tangible way that they really do mean a partnership. He's investing in them so that they can focus on really serving their customers and making the hotel a success, I imagine. Yes. And, I, and I'd ask him questions like, how come you weren't like everybody else, you know, announcing that half of you aren't going to be here in two weeks? I said, how come you like gave them a freebie saying you all, you all stay? And he said that in his world, there were three ways of getting people to do what you want. And the first is intimidation, which would be the equivalent of, hey, shape up or you're out of here. But he said that never works because, well, it works short term, but long term it doesn't work because the employee you know, may try to shape up, but they're going to do it grudgingly. They're, they're not going to give it their all. They're going to do as little as they can to get by because intimidation just by its nature, people dig in their heels and and don't like it. So, by the way, the first two I'm going to tell you are, are ways that he doesn't recommend, but of the three ways that in his world you have to get compliance, the next one would have been bribery. And he said, I could have stood up there and told them, do a great job and there's a bonus for you, or do a great job and there's a raise for you. But he said, the problem with bribery is that people work just for the bribe. It's too transactional. They're not going to give something they're all. So, you know, naturally it's on my mind, what's the one that does work? And he said, inspiration. He said that when he was talking with his new employees, he wasn't telling the woman who's making beds as a chambermaid or waiting on tables or tending bar. He told them that they're part of something bigger. They're part of a team 
that's going to be an example to the rest of the city and that he believes in them. And he said, when you inspire instead of requiring, you get people to give their all. They're fully engaged. They like their work. They're part of a team. They're part of something bigger than, than themselves. And the, the lesson that he gave me out of this is people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Wow, that's really powerful. I bet you you can identify places in your own life, maybe even early in your career, when that idea of living up to or living down to someone's expectations helped you make an important career decision. Well, I have a reputation that I'm extraordinarily proud of is that if you work for me, there are two reasons that you'll leave me. One is to get married and the other is to die. <laughs> but other than that, like my, my assistant, Cindy Downs, has been with me for 31 years. Yeah, others have been with me for decades. So I think just inspiring and not requiring, not intimidating or bribing, but believing the absolute best of them, it certainly worked in, in my career. So I think a lot of people who are listening will be thinking to themselves, wow, Mitzi had all of this amazing experience and firsthand education that you must have immediately started working in management as a teenager, maybe, and then in your early 20s, taking on important areas of responsibility. Yet you and I know that's not true. You actually had an impediment you had to overcome. Can you talk a little bit about how shyness affected your life and what finally made a difference? Okay. Oh, I'd love to share that because this might be useful to other people who are shy. I had a reason to be shy, which is I had a terrible lisp. And the problem, if your lisp is bad enough, people think you're stupid. And you know, I've, I've had people that I've known well, you know, after several years, they'll tell me, gosh, when I first met you, I thought you were stupid. Well, you know, that does a lot to make a person really shy. So after college, I chose a career where I didn't have to interact with people very much. I became, and you're going to wonder if you're hearing me right, but yeah, you are hearing me right. I became a rice farmer. I grew rice, you know, the stuff you eat with chopsticks if you're in the Orient. Like rice patties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's many a rice pot patty that I have walked through. Isn't it really correct to say waded through? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know what? No, actually, I was being technically accurate because if you see a rice field, there are lots of paddies. There's the wet part, and then there are the mounds of earth that keep the wet part in the banks of, so the water doesn't just flow all over everywhere. It's, it's, uh, so you can walk the rice paddies by walking along these berm areas that keep the water in. So yeah, I both waited and walked in rice paddies. But it was a way of dealing with the fact that I was just painfully, miserably shy. I was so shy that it was actually hard for me. I had two kids. And when they were in school, occasionally there are reasons you have to call their teacher. And I can remember sitting on the edge of my bed for half an hour thinking, what am I going to say to this person? Yeah, you know, what, what do I answer? Uh, that's how bad it was. But then there was a point in my life where everything changed. And that is, let's see if I can tell this story briefly, but at age, I think I was 38, at age 38, I really hadn't done much in my life other than I think I was a pretty good rice grower, but I, I really wanted more out of life because I felt I had a really good education 
And my dream had always been communications like television or writing, like being a journalist or writing books or being in radio. And I'd never tried. And then an event happened that totally changed my life. There was a man who worked for me for years and years and years. And to protect the guilty, I'm going to change his name. We'll call him Peter Smith. But Peter Smith had an IQ of over 200. He was uh, probably one of the most brilliant people anybody would ever come across. And from a young age, he knew that he had this gift and he wanted to give back to humanity. You know, he had been given this gift of amazing intelligence. He wanted to give back in the form of writing a great book and he even had a title for it. It was going to be Life, an Owner's Manual. Well, Peter from age 20 had been planning this book, but every year he felt, you know, there's more to learn. It would just be arrogant of me to try to write it now. But then finally, at age 68, he was diagnosed with terminal heart disease, and the doctors were afraid they couldn't keep him alive long enough to take him to the Mayo Clinic for quadruple bypass surgery. So basically, it was a death sentence. And here, he had this great gift that he could have given humanity, but he had never acted on it. And so that inspired you. You It kind of gave you a kick in the pants and said, well, wait a second. If that could happen to someone like Peter... That could happen to any of us. Yeah, and I began analyzing why had he never written the book? I mean, he had the time to do it, and he had certainly done the research. I had seen his garage with, I'm going to guess, hundreds of file cabinets filled with the notes of what he was going to do. And then I realized what was holding him back, what had held him back. By the way, let me jump ahead in the story really briefly. But Peter Smith had something like a miracle happen to him. We're talking I, like the late 1970s. He went to the Pritikin Clinic, which is an organization that has a really good track record of dealing with people with heart disease. And after a month there of you know, diet, exercise, meditation, just full on total health care, he had lost 15 pounds. And his doctor said that his heart had revascularized and the man lived another 30 years. So When he got back and it turned out that he wasn't going to die, I told him, Peter, this is the most wonderful news I've ever heard in my life. Write your book. And he told me, yes, I just have to do a little bit more research and I'll be ready to to write the book. Well, he lived another 30 years. I mean, he lived until he was ancient. He never wrote the book. But I'm thinking, why did he not write the book? He had the ability to do it, but he held back and didn't do it. And it seemed to me, from to the extent that I knew him, and I think I really knew him very, very well, I think it was fear of failure. He was afraid that if he wrote this great, if he procrastinated forever, he wouldn't have thrown in his face that the book didn't succeed. But that meant that he did the one thing that was guaranteed to keep him, well, guaranteed to create failure, which is not to try. So I decided I would redefine failure and You know, the fear of of failing an audition or having my work returned to me, I think that was what had kept me from, from really trying for what I wanted. So I decided to redefine failure. For me, failure would be not that I got turned down or my work rejected. No, that would be success. Failure would be not trying. And after you've redefined that and you had that moment of insight, what are one of the first things that you did once you said, I'm going to stop this behavior of not trying. And I'm going to, what was it that you decided to do? Well, the first thing that I did was 
I, since childhood, I'd wanted to be a writer. I began submitting articles to lo- local newspapers and you know, eventually some were successful. And within a year, I was, I was syndicated throughout California, a news service called the Capital News Service. And then I really wanted a career in television, which is you know, that's a pretty audacious dream, but I had the dream and I thought, why not try? But there was something that was holding me back, which was my lisp. So I went to a speech therapist and the speech therapist said at age 38, which was what I was at the time, we don't have the tools to help you. That's what's going to be with you for life. Well, I didn't want to get discouraged. So I went to the next, to another, you know, hunting in the, in the yellow pages back then. I went to another speech pathologist, you know, can you help me get rid of my lisp? And she told me the same thing as the first one. Nope. At age 38, actually, we aren't good at helping even adults. And by the way, Bill, I bet you that this has changed in the years since, but we're talking 40 years ago. They weren't able to help people. So I went to a third speech therapist and she told me the same thing as the other two, but she said, I'd love to take your money. I don't think I can help you, but if you want to spend your money, you can be my patient. And for nine months, I didn't make any progress of any sort. I mean, it was really discouraging. But on the other hand, I really wanted to try for a career in television. And within a year, I had overcome the lisp. And I did try for television. And guess what? I got my own show. And pretty soon, uh, it was syndicated to 76 stations. But if, if, if I'd been held back by fear of failure, I don't think I would have tried to overcome the lisp. I don't think I would have submitted things to to the newspapers. And I also wouldn't have auditioned for the Coast to Coast Radio Network, which also took me on. But within one a year, I went from being too shy to use the telephone to being somebody who had a radio show, a television show, and a newspaper column. Wow, what a transformation. In your book, you write that Zig Ziglar said, you never know when a moment and a few sincere words can have an impact on a life. And you set yourself up to share via your column your radio show, and your TV show to share a lot of your words and have an impact on many, many lives. What was it that you wanted to share with people that encouraged you and compelled you to keep trying and to overcome any obstacles that came in your way? Well, we're, we're getting right down to the real nitty gritty of what makes me tick. And I'll tell you what makes me tick. What I really want to do in life is increase happiness and decrease misery. And Communication seems the best tool that's available to me. So that's why I wanted to write. That's why I wanted to speak. And who were some of the people who you found as inspirations or role models in order to help others increase their happiness and decrease their misery? Okay, this is, this is going to be a tip out of the book that I wrote with Mark Victor Hansen, The Chicken Soup for the Soul Guy. There's, the inspiration I'm about to describe comes as a pair there's the good example and there's the terrible example. And they, they're, they're mirror images of each other. You share them and I'll guess. Let, give us a chance to guess which is which. <laughs> <laughs> I think you won't have any trouble. <laughs> but but I, I, yeah, I love that. So everybody guess. One was Emperor Napoleon. He lived around the 1800s. And by 1805, Napoleon probably had more power, money, fame, wealth, territory, women, than anybody else up to that time in history. Yeah, he pretty much owned a good chunk of Europe. As I said, there, there are few people in the world who, who ever had more of the worldly goodies. 
his opposite was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, the Catholic order that she belongs to, allows its members three saris, as in the, the cotton robe that the, ben, the poor women in Bengali would wear, India, and the sandals on her feet. So she owned three saris and the sandals on her feet. I mean, could you get more further from Napoleon? No possessions. And while he presided over one of the greatest courts that have ever existed, she spent her time serving the poorest of the poor, particularly lepers. I mean, the the number of deaths that she attended for people with leprosy is, is probably countless. These are her words. She ate the bread of the poor. She would eat the same kind of food that the poorest of the poor would eat. Her life was spent ministering to the most marginalized, the most ill, the most poverty-stricken. That's where she spent her life. Now, who was happier? And now we come to the guessing game. Who's the good (laughs) example? How's the bad example? So I think that Napoleon would probably be the example who didn't lead the kind of same satisfaction. um, Okay. Despite his accomplishments. All right. Let me tell you what Napoleon himself said. And I, I read this in a biography of Napoleon. Napoleon said, And he's writing, by the way, at the end of his days, he's in exile in a miserable little island in the South Atlantic. He writes, when I look back on my life, I can't count six happy days. Can you imagine with all the wealth, money, power, fame, all the earthly goodies that exist? But all these goodies came his way because he took them. So that's Napoleon. I can't count six happy days. Now let's switch focus over to Mother Teresa. Just a minute, Mitzi. I, I think you and I both know many, many successful people who share that same affliction, who can't really look back on any happiness, even though they have great ambition and great accomplishments. And they just, because it's not something that they've seen a way to connect with any larger mission, or it just doesn't fulfill them. They just have an, an appetite that can't be satisfied. Well, oh, Let me jump then to, this is another part of of the book that Mark Victor Hansen and I wrote, but the philosopher Plato, 2,300 years ago, said that men think power, money, and fame will make them happy, but they never do because you always need more and more. So his students asked him, what does make men happy? Generically, men, men and women. What, What does make people happy if power, money, and fame don't do it? And he said, this is Plato, truth, beauty, and goodness, because truth, beauty, and goodness, they're satisfying each in itself. You don't have to kill people to to get more truth or more beauty or more goodness. No, each one just by itself can make you happy. And I want to switch back to the other side of my equation. There's Napoleon, the example that I don't want to follow, and Mother Teresa, whose example I think is worth following. So here's a woman who owned four earthly possessions and dedicated her life to serving others in her biography or in a biography of her. She, this is a direct quote. My life has been a feast of unending joy. You know, so which, which would you rather Napoleon or mother Teresa? As I listen to you, I, I understand how mother Teresa's story is so much more compelling and how that message is so buried in our modern culture where people just aren't, told how satisfying, fulfilling truth, beauty, and goodness is, but all of the external measures of success and measures of accomplishment are. And there's no reason that people can't be very, very successful, create lots and lots of jobs, 
grow their business tremendously and still find that satisfaction in truth, beauty, and goodness. It's not either or. I think that there's a combination of accomplishment and fulfillment. Would you agree with that from your research and your experiences? Uh, with all my heart. And you know, particularly with the two men that I was closest to, my late father, he once told me, I came upon him, you know, he, he had a study in, in our home in Boston, Massachusetts. And I walked into his study and I saw him just deep into books and research and asked him what he was doing. Well, he was researching organizations or people that he was going to help fund, charities. And you know, he was clearly putting a lot of effort into it. So I asked him, you know, why do you spend all this time and all this effort? And he said, the greatest pleasure my money has ever given me is in giving it away. Is that not cool? Yeah, that's very cool. And then, that's very cool. And then Frank Perdue had a somewhat similar approach to life. I used to think of Frank as the man who had it all because he was, you know, he was a successful businessman. But he was also a successful family man and a remarkably successful community man. Because he did the following. He figured out, and, and I love this. I, I recommend it to anybody else who's feeling philanthropic. He thought that he could do more good for his local community by helping create endowments for the, the major United Way organizations like the Food Bank or the Red Cross or the local university. His reasoning was, if let, let's take the Food Bank as, as an example, but there were 21 that he helped do this with. If they have an endowment that gives them steady income, then they won't have to spend so much time fundraising and they can, they can spend more time delivering services. And you know, what, a, what a multiplier. He didn't, he didn't start a charity on his own. No, he made the existing ones more effective by freeing up time and getting more resources for the existing ones. And I bet that many people who are listening to this who have taken that step and looked to support some existing charity rather than starting one with his or her name on it really makes a difference and finds that great level of satisfaction that you described that Frank did. The happiest I ever saw him was in the following situations, and that was plural with an S on the end of it. I believe that he gave away thousands of scholarships. I mean, don't hold me to that number, but that's that's my impression. And the happiest I ever saw him would be when the following would happen. Maybe it would be at a restaurant or, I don't know, a subway station or who knows where. And somebody would come up to him, male or female, and say, Mr. Purdue, the scholarship that you gave me changed my life. You know, I'm now happily married. I've got three children and I've got a great job. And none of that would have happened because without a scholarship, I wouldn't have gotten an education. My family couldn't have afforded it. You know, you utterly changed my life for the better. And, you know, Frank would just, his face would glow with, with happiness knowing what he had done. That is remarkable. And I think that it's not until you see the impact that realizing that one interaction, one word of encouragement or gesture that takes people to a place that they wouldn't have gone before. And I'm talking to people who could do this with their employees, with their associates, with their suppliers, with their advisors and help bring that energy into their organization and multiply it by amplifying those sorts of good deeds and, and good words. Well, Frank was, to my mind, a walking miracle for how he treated the people who worked with him. Yeah. You know, he started with no employees, ended at the time of his death with 20,000. 
And you don't get people to stay with you for life like that unless you treat them right. And here are some of the things. Well, let me let me share just one thing that I, I watched him do. I had the huge privilege, I love doing this, of walking through the various chicken plants with him. And the number of workers on the line whose name he knew was just staggering. I mean, he could introduce me, you know, Mitzi, this is Delcy. Delcy's son just got into college. Or meet Antonio. Antonio has had 30 years without a sick day. And you know, he, he, just, he not only knew the names, he knew little facts about them. And again, I can't know that what I'm about to say is true, but I believe it's true. I think he knew the names of thousands and thousands of people. Uh, he, he just, he cared enough to learn names. So true. And it really is just what you said. It's caring enough to take the time to ask, listen, remember, and then use it somehow that really cements that knowledge into place. And when somebody uses it, like you described how Frank would introduce them and use that the, the details of that person in the introduction, I'm sure that made a world of difference. That was what I call one of those dinner table discussions where Antonio might go home that night and say, you'll never believe it. Frank Perdue remembered my name and introduced me to his wife and he knew you know, these facts about me. Yeah, I mean, well, but then let me boast about something else that I had something to do with. We had a program since our, the beginning of our marriage, which was 1988, since I came from a hotel background or a hospitality background. To me, you know, the way I look at the world is getting to know people, entertaining hospitality. So I suggested to Frank right at the beginning of our marriage that we should entertain every single person who worked for the company. And at that point, we're talking 1988, there were 16,000 employees. And Frank's instant reaction was, no, that's way too many. And I said, and I think we should have them 100 at a time. And again, no. And then I was sort of pretending that I didn't understand that he was saying no. And I was saying, I bet we could get it set up in six weeks. And he said, no, that's way too soon. But then, you know, as we talked about this more, he sort of changed his mind from you know, what planet did you come from to, you know, maybe there's something to this until finally, uh, you know, in the course of maybe talking 20 minutes, he said, I like it, let's do it. And for the next 17 years until his passing, we would often have three groups of 100 people a month. So three weeks out of four, I mean, this is kind of generally, I mean, it wasn't every month, but we would have groups of employees, whether they were the veterinarians, the accountants, the sanitation workers, the truckers, everybody. And at these parties, it would be in our home and would have a great big long buffet table. And Frank would stand behind the buffet table along with some other waiters, and he would wait on his employees. Is that not the coolest thing in the world? That's a real model of servant leadership. And it's probably pretty cool for employees to walk past their boss or their boss's boss's boss and have them put some fried chicken on a plate. And, and of course it was fried chicken. <laughs> or at least it guaranteed it was chicken because the chef from the local plant, I was so popular with this guy because he was a chef. But if, you, if you're a chef in a chicken plant, uh, yeah, there's a limit to how fancy you can make the food. But this gave him a chance to show off like his best. So it was really fun. But something else at these parties, Frank used to talk with every single guest there. And then he'd stand up at the end of the evening and tell people what was going on in the company, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that they'd really have a sense of what we as a team are up against and what we've accomplished. And at the very end of the evening, it, you know, he'd use different words each time, but it would be to the effect of, 
I know this company wouldn't be what it is today without you. And you know, what must it mean for an employee? Imagine you're a trucker or anybody in the company of 16,000 or eventually 20,000 to have the big boss personally thank you. In a very small group. In a small group, in his home. Yes. Missy, that's a powerful story. And I have a question for you. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Totally. All right. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about a person growing up, and you told me about your, your mother being a warm and kind person and your father who talked about how he built the Sheraton chain. When you were a teenager, what's a song you found inspiring growing up? Oh, my gosh. I loved Some Enchanted Evening from South Pacific. And that's just how it turned out to be with Frank. We met one evening and boom. That's terrific. What would you say is the best $100 purchase or so you've made in the last six months? A microphone that I purchased for podcasting. And now here's one of the less is more kinds of questions. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I had a habit of saying yes too often. And how have you changed it? I now tell myself if it's not hell yes, it's hell no. There's decisiveness. Mitzi, you've written in your book, How to Be Up and Down Times. You speak to groups all over the country and internationally. You still write and give podcasts all over the world. And that's brought you a great deal of recognition and influence. What's a way that you've found that's personally meaningful to you in order to make use of this audience, this following that you've worked so hard to achieve? My passion in life right now is combating human trafficking. People are, I think, insufficiently aware of the fact that right now there are 40 million human slaves. It's right up there with illegal drugs and illegal arms sales as a source of revenue. And the, the suffering involved is unimaginable. And when problems like that are brought to our attention, it seems so overwhelming how any one of us could do something to combat it. What have you found that's allowed you to make a difference in that area against such a, a formidable issue? I've talked, I bet you I've talked with 100 different people, maybe 200. And what's most needed, all these heads of organizations, anti-trafficking organizations tell me, is they want funds, as in money, and they want awareness for the problem. Well, that is a, a big deal. What is it that people could do to follow up and stay abreast of what's going on in the human trafficking area so that we could educate ourselves about this issue and learn ways to get involved if that's something that we find appropriate? Okay, there's nothing that I'd like more than if people listening to us would come to the website that I have, winthisfight.org, and... If they'd sign up for my blog, I have weekly blogs on it. And the subject of the blogs is always I interview existing organizations and find out what their ways of combating human trafficking are. Uh, if they go to my website and they wish to donate items that can be converted into cash through like an internet auction, I can direct their the sale of their item to whatever anti-trafficking organization they care about. Well, you've kept up your writing and now channeled it into this passion. So that's no surprise that you have a blog that contains all of those details and has a rich 
list of ways to become more aware as well as to become more involved. Mitzi, you've shared so many great ideas with us on the interview today. I want to thank you so much for sharing those stories about your father and how you would learn to get his attention and ask him questions about building such a successful business and how you learned from him some of the important ways that he talked to employees of organizations and hotels that he took over and shared from starting with, I want everyone to stay in your job and then backed it up, not just with words, but with action. It's important to get compliance and you learn from him that there are three ways, intimidation, bribery, and inspiration, and how powerful it is to use inspiration. And even though it's not well modeled in our culture, it doesn't take much to learn when you're using inspiration versus intimidation or bribery. You shared a really inspiring personal story about overcoming your shyness and the lisp. And that wouldn't have happened unless you had that life-changing experience of Peter Smith, who was your friend who said for every year that you had known him, he was going to write a book. He was faced with a life-challenging situation with his heart. He recovered from that and still didn't write his book. And that motivated you to say, my gosh, I've got to get my message out there. And one of the first things you did was you redefined failure to make it about not where failure, the only thing that was failing was not trying. And once you did that, you started to gain ways to share through your talent of communicating, both in writing, as well as in radio and TV. And within a year, you had achieved a great deal of influence and visibility through all that you shared. And then finally, talking about the importance of joy and happiness and satisfaction, where you contrasted Emperor Napoleon with Mother Teresa and how Mother Teresa really talked about even having so little to her name, the three Indian saris and a pair of sandals. She found a feast of expanding joy in her life. It was just wonderful to hear. And I want to thank you so much for sharing that story as well. So Mitzi Perdue, author of How to Be Up and Down Times, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. It's been pure joy. Thank you so much for having me. Missy, before we say goodbye for now, would you share also a website that people could go to to find out all the things that you're up to and how you're sharing your idea through your communication skills these days? I would love for people to come to MitziPurdue.com. Well, we will link to that in the show notes, as well as your other causes and charities and social media channels so that people find it super easy in order to follow you find out what's going on, and participate in every way that makes sense. Mitzi Perdue, thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best, 
each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.